Welcome to Stories of Faith and Hope, the podcast that inspires your faith and gives you reason to hope. I'm your host, Joel Sutherland. Today, I can't wait to introduce you to someone that I met quite a few years ago, Chaplain Richard Stembachen. His resume says that he is a speaker, instructor, mentor, counselor, first-person presenter, and author. He has an incredible story, and if we were to go through his life story, it would take many, many episodes. But instead of doing that, he does talk a little bit about his story in this episode. Uh, We are talking about an historical event, uh, the White Coat Program. You may have heard about it. You may have not heard about it, but I can't wait to introduce that topic to you as Chaplain Stenbachen discusses that today. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Chaplain Richard Stenbachen. Chaplain Stenbachen, welcome to Stories of Faith and Hope. My pleasure to be here. So I'm looking at at the resume that you sent me, and I feel like it would take the rest of the 15 minutes to read through everything. (laughs) You've done a lot in your life here. Um, How I knew you, the little personal connection here, Um, you were my dad's boss for a while when he was a chaplain, um, and you were in charge of Adventist chaplains, and uh, you were were helping with that, and uh, and when we were in Japan, I guess, and, That's right. Uh, I remember staying with you folks in Japan, sleeping yes. on the mat. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> and I remember you did a um, a talk at the church that afternoon um, with your uh, Roman Roman soldier outfit as well. Oh yes, that uh, Roman armor has been all over the world. Yes. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of a little bit about your background. We'll get into more of the chaplaincy and how you got involved in that in a little bit. But um, tell us a little bit about your background. Who are you? Where are you from? And uh, what do you currently do? Well, I was born and raised in Denver um, and then went to, to college, in, Union College in Lincoln, Nebraska, and then to seminary. From there, pastored in Wyoming for about four years then was invited to go into the military, into the Army, as a U.S. Army chaplain to active duty during the Vietnam conflict. Hmm. Um, I thought, well, we'll take that call for three months, three years, and see how that goes. It'd be like any other pastoral call. Mm-hmm. Well, it was much more than that. And 23 years later, um, I, I stayed in for 23 years. Then the Seventh-day Adventist Church headquarters asked me to come and be the director of chaplaincy ministries on a worldwide basis. That was military, health care, corrections, uh, VA, campus, and industry. Wow. So I retired from the Army and took up that job for the next 13 years, and that's when I intersected with your family, Mm -hmm. running the servicemen center in Japan. And since retiring, quote, (laughs) <laughs> I've continued to be active. I've done seven DVDs of first-person characters, presentations, um, written a couple of books, working on another book, and uh, generally keeping busy in various aspects of ministry. Wow. So obviously we're not going to be able to cover all of that in the next 15 minutes, but I do want to talk a little bit about your call to ministry. What initially inspired um, this idea to go into ministry? And it sounds like from what you just said, your initial idea wasn't military. It was, it was civilian pastoral ministry. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, as a young person in high school, uh, I worked at a hospital in Denver, and I noticed that doctors not only did good, but they did well. Hmm. That was my aim. I thought, well, I can serve God and uh, do good at the same time do well for myself. So I was planning on pre-med and then was very clearly impressed, I mean very clearly impressed that, no, I should go into ministry, which I resisted because ministers are not known for driving Porsche automobiles. (laughs) Um, And so it was in my senior year of high school that I was very strongly impressed and still resisted until I got to college. I was a double major in college when I registered both for theology and medicine. Oh, wow. And then it became very painfully clear to me that I had been called to ministry. And that that wasn't my first choice, but uh, it was something that I just, I, there was no question that that's what God wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. Finally, I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, then I pursued ministry with a passion uh, went to seminary, came out with two master's degrees, and then pastored. And then I had kind of planned to be a Bible teacher, and so I'd done a lot of history study and ran across chaplaincy, and I had a file on chaplaincy because I considered that ministry was much wider than just being in the pulpit. Right. It's serving community in lots of ways, one of which might be as a chaplain. Did not intend to become a chaplain, but again, through a series of circumstances, God made it clear that that's where I would best serve. And looking back, it was a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about, um, well, something I think that we want to spend the majority of our time today on is the White Coat Program. So you mentioned that you joined the military as a chaplain during Vietnam, and uh, I know that you ended up having a lot of, of experience and um, and. Uh, you intersected a little bit with, with people in the White Coat Program. Tell us a little bit about what that program was and, and maybe share some stories from that. Well, the White Coat Program came into being probably in the 1955 efficiently was when it started. Uh, it was beginning in 54, although it wasn't called White Coat. Basically, this was the U.S. Army's attempt to build uh, protective gear and understanding on chemical, biological, and radiological warfare, particularly chemical and biological. Um, Biological and chemical warfare goes way back to the Persians. It's not something new at all. Hmm. Lots of interesting ancient stories about chemical and biological warfare. Um, But the U.S. Army was concerned that uh, an enemy could contaminate water or air and productively do a huge damage with a small amount of contaminant. Hmm. So the question was, how do you protect soldiers on the battlefield and civilians in large cities? So they started to conduct experiments to see what could be done as a protective thing. Well, during the draft, Seventh-day Adventists, of course, with others were being drafted, and because most Seventh-day Adventists were conscientious objectors or conscientious cooperators, in other words, willing to carry a weapon, but willing to serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them went into the medical field. Well, somebody said, wait a minute. If we're looking for a control group for experiments, 
here's a group that's educationally pretty stable and steady across the line. Uh, their lifestyle habits, no alcohol, no smoking, uh, no drugs, um, that's pretty good. And they're in the medical field. Hmm. So the Army approached the Seventh-day Adventist Church and said, we would like to consider using your people who have been drafted and or volunteered as medics in these experiments to provide information on how to prevent major attack. Interesting. And so the church at first was kind of, well, not so sure. They want to get too cozy with the church and state thing. But then after examination, being convinced that this was not for warfare purposes in terms of perpetrating polar biological warfare, but preventing it, uh, the church headquarters said, yeah, if, if the people want to do it. Hmm. Well, as it turned out, something like about 2,300 Seventh-day Adventist adults were drafted and joined in the medics were not then involved in the White Coat experiments. And it's interesting that the White Coat Project is the largest, longest ongoing human experimental system that's done with the participation and the agreement of people in the program. If you were in the White Coats, you had to sign that you were willing to do that, you're under no duress to do it, that it's your choice to do it. Every time a particular test was done with whatever the situation was, you were informed as to what the testing was. You had to sign again, yes, I agree to do this. Huh. And deeply like anything in the military, you could say at any point, no. Interesting. Wanna, uh, believe me, that's unique in the military. Yeah. And so you could opt out of white coat anytime. So the experiments were uh, basically biological, some chemical. One set of experiments, which I found very interesting, a couple of guys, Art Walls, he's living in California still, a couple of other guys who were drafted, went in as, as medics, then volunteered for white coats. You had to volunteer. Weren't pushed into white coats. You had to volunteer. Uh, he and several other guys who had already had uh, light training licensed as pilots were put into a special test program and they were put into kind of a aircraft module where they stayed for several days and they were infected became pretty ill headaches that's or, but they then were tested throughout the whole process to see if they could control the, quote, airplane. Hmm. Well, later on, years later, they found out that this was a test for some of the first uh, orbital Earth moonshots to be sure that the astronauts could function if they became ill because nobody knew what's out there. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was not just for warfare, but for um, protection, but also for the protection of the astronauts. Interesting. And some of the, uh, you know, you see the white suits when people come into a contaminated area, the, the chemical protective clothing and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a direct of some of the white coat testing as well. Huh, interesting. So the white coat process was uh, huge. It, it Not only for military, but out of the findings, there were developed treatments, oculations for a number of diseases that have saved millions of lives worldwide, civilian population, as well as military. Hmm, wow. So what kind of interaction did you have with those involved in the program? I didn't have initially direct contact with them when I became director of Adventist Chaplaincy Ministries. Then there were a number of get-togethers of the white coats, I guess you could say, sometimes up to uh, two, three hundred of them. Hmm. So these guys would get together and they would share experiences and talk about what had happened to them in white coats and what had happened to them subsequently. Interestingly, quite a number of the people who were in the white coat project, as a result of that, then got out and went into health care services because they had been involved with health care issues and got out, used their GI Bill, right back into health care, became little ministers and things like that, physicians. So uh, it had a lasting positive impact a lot of people. Hmm. Of the 2,300 people, there's only one individual who was given a disability by the military. He had some health issues that he felt were connected with white coats. The military said, well, our studies don't show that there's a direct line. Give you the benefit of the doubt. And 
into a uh, medical retirement. So that's one person out of 2,300. Wow. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because for some reason, you know, when, when you hear about the White Coat Project, or at least when I hear about it, um, sometimes it's cast in a negative light, um, and and you hear about you know health problems, etc. So I was going to ask about that. So only one person then actually experienced that because of the because of the white coat program. Well, only one person was med- medically retired. Okay. Now, some of the people have, of course, they're all aging now, uh, and they've done a, a long long term study white coats. And findings were that there is a slight increase potential for headaches, hmm. and the percentage is so small that in some ways it's almost statistically without meaning, but it, it, they may have a little bit more tendency to headaches, and I think there was one other minor patient, but the long-term studies indicate that white coats don't really or physical symptomatology or problems than the average population. Hmm. Okay. Wow. That is very fascinating. Thank you for sharing about that, because um, that's something I didn't know a whole lot about, and I know probably our listeners didn't either. Um, so I know we, we have about uh, a minute left. Um, so I was just going to ask, you've mentioned several of your um, things that you've done since then. You've, um, you were in charge of Adventist Chaplains um, Ministries for a little bit. What exactly does that encompass? And I know you mentioned several different branches of chaplaincy. Um, is, uh, is it more, I mean, it's more than just military chaplaincy. Um, what kind of chaplaincy services does the Adventist Church offer that maybe people not in the military would be able to, um, to benefit from? Well, of course, hospital chaplaincy, healthcare, campus chaplaincy, prison ministry chaplaincy, and all of these to be an officially recognized Seventh-day Adventist chaplain have to be endorsed. It means the organization and, and each religious body has this. So if you're a Baptist, be a VA chaplain, you have to meet certain requirements. Your Baptist church has to, at, at their highest level, yes, we recognize this person, we recommend them, they meet our requirements as a clergy person, and they meet the educational and other requirements as a chaplain. Okay. And that's true of the Seventh-day Adventist, too, and there's only one signature in each denominational group that can verify a person being chaplain federal levels. Wow. So it's um, it's an attempt to keep chaplaincy at a very high and professional level, spiritually, educationally, and personally. Wow. So if someone's interested in becoming a chaplain or interested in military or, or hospital or any of these other branches of chaplaincy, what would be the first step that they should do if that's something that interests them? Well, they would need to contact their religious organization at the highest level and ask what the requirements are. Okay. There are some places where you can go online and get a certificate as chaplain, and that's absolutely a waste of money and time. Mm-hmm. There's no major organization hire a chaplain without the correct direct endorsement, as it should be. Okay. So the first step would be to contact your religious headquarters, find out what the requirements are of that particular organization and that particular area of chaplaincy. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you. That is very helpful. And and if you as a listener are interested in, in exploring more of, of chaplaincy and, and ministry, maybe outside of a regular um, church pulpit, then that would be a wonderful opportunity to look into. Well, thank you, Chaplain Stenbachen, for spending a few minutes with us today. And uh, if people are interested, I know there's a whole lot more that we could have talked about with um, with the DVDs that you've recorded, with first-person storytelling, stuff like that. If people are more in, are interested in learning more about you and your ministry, um, what would be the best way to get in touch with you or find out more about that? Well, the easiest thing is just to go online and type in Bible Faces, B-I-B-L-E-F-A-C-E-S, come. And uh, there's a lot of information there, sample presentation. And it's something that I have enjoyed developing and doing, and in fact, have done 
all over the Army system this year and last year with the Army Chief of Chaplains. So that was quite an interesting thing. Wow. Been longer than I was in, be invited to go chief all over the system. It was a lot of fun. Good wow. ministry. Wow, I can imagine. Such an informative conversation with Chaplain Stenbachen. I know it's a little bit different than what we often have on the podcast, but hopefully you're able to take something away from it. I know I enjoyed my conversation with him, and hopefully you did as well. Next week here on the podcast, we have Luis Laporte. Now, if you listen to the trailer that we had right before we launched season three, then you've already heard a little bit of his testimony. It's an incredible story. And in case you didn't hear it, or maybe if you did, just as a reminder, here is a snippet of next week's episode with Luis Laporte. And after this Vespers, they had an afterglow, and I was hanging out with some friends, and I managed to make at school. And um, this guy came up to me, and he said something about me, started laughing in my face and I remember just running away completely just going to the dorm completely you know getting on the floor crying I said God why why I just didn't understand and as soon as I was just crying I was a mess I heard a knock on the door this inspirational story will be right here on stories of faith and hope next week Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it and other upcoming episodes. And give us a five-star rating if you like the show. Uh, You can also find us online at faithandhoperadio.com, on Facebook and Instagram at faithandhoperadio. Music was provided by Dexter Britton under the Creative Commons license. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless you. And until we meet again, have faith and hope.